Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Vicki Ruiz on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, From Out of the Shadows, Mexican Women in 20th Century America. This book was first published 10 years ago, and a new edition, the 10th anniversary edition, has been published by Oxford University Press. Vicki is one of the founders of uh, Latina history or Chicana history. I don't really know how one should say it. Uh, you should listen to the interview because she talks about just this issue. Um, Latinas or Chicanas uh, were, of course, one of the marginalized groups uh, that really did not have a history, at least in English. And it's largely thanks to Vicky uh, and her colleagues that we um, know their history today. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrific story she tells. Um, one of perseverance and difficulties and acculturation and assimilation. In other words, it's a very American story, uh, so I encourage you to read it, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Vicki. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm just fine. You're in, you're, are you in sunny California? Yes, it's beautiful. It's going to be 70, to, 70 degrees 70 today. degrees today. No, uh, here in Iowa, uh, it is absolutely gorgeous out, save for the fact that it is about 20 degrees out. I don't mind. Oh my I don't mind it. Actually, I lived in California at one time. I went to graduate school there, and uh, you guys don't really have change of seasons, at least like we do. And uh, I, I miss that very much. Yeah. No. So, we, it's, it's generally warm. It's generally warm. Uh, people tend to dance when it's uh, 65. People tend to <laughs> get too cold, and they're, yeah. they're bundled up. But <laughs> yeah. Well, I should tell our listeners that we're very pleased to have Vicki Ruiz on the show today, and we'll be talking about uh, the 10th anniversary edition of mm-hmm. her terrific book, From Out of the Shadows, Mexican Women in 20th Century America. And I have read the book, and it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and um, what I'd like you to do, Vicki, right now is, mm-hmm. in our traditional way, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you went to school, and how you came to work in history and write this book. Okay. Well, um, I grew up in a family of storytellers. Uh, um, particularly uh, my mother and grandmother uh, um, told, always told stories of how they grew up. My grandmother uh, uh, grew up um, Maria uh, Nieves uh, Moya, Greece, um, lived with us um, on and off while I was growing up. She had uh, four daughters, three with whom she got along with, and so there was a round robin of <laughs> her um, going and, and visiting <laughs> Uh, for extended periods of time. Uh, and she would talk about sort of uh, her Colorado girlhood. And uh, my mother uh, would do the same. And uh, I grew up in in Florida. And as my mother would say, you know, we live in the South, but you're not of the South. Uh, there's always a pride that, you know, you were, you know, uh, you were from the, you were from the, um, uh, you were from the West, you were from Colorado, mm-hmm. you know, you were from, uh, at the time, they would be called Hispano, or we would call them today, it would be, you know, Hispanic mm-hmm. uh, heritage. 
and my parent, my my mother, um, you know, this sort of this, this love of history. And then at uh, I would I would hear these family stories, but when I grew up, and you still see this to some extent, is in U.S. history texts. You know, you see there was you know there was Ponce de Leon. I did grow up in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, the Alamo. And there was Pasovia. <laughs> that was about the extent of Latino history. Yeah, right. And um, and so I was one of the reasons I, I became a historian is I wanted to sort of bridge the narratives that I read mm-hmm. and bridge those narratives um, with uh, the family stories. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, my my parents didn't believe in television. <laughs> they believed it was important to read. I mean, really. I mean, the television was when you watch news and you watch sporting events. Um, we had a black and white television till I was like 13 years old. Till about 1968, my parents broke down and actually brought the color TV. It was mm-hmm. the only color TV they ever bought. Mm-hmm. They had that TV uh, un- until um, um, my father's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was my and so the bookmobile was an important part of my life. The mm-hmm. idea of it really opened up sort of a different world mm-hmm. for me. Uh, and I was very interested in, in history, and I was going to be a high school history teacher. Mm-hmm. Went to community college, uh, lived at home till I was 20, uh, and then I went 100 miles away to Florida State. Mm-hmm. And I was going to be a high school history teacher, mm-hmm. and I took the uh, one of the first U.S. women's history classes uh, uh, in, in the country, uh, certainly at Florida State, and uh, was fascinated. Mm-hmm. And Jean Gould... Uh, Brian, my professor, a young assistant professor, asked me to uh, see her during office hours. I thought I'd done something really wrong. <laughs> and I was petrified. <laughs> and so I went to her office, and she's like, uh, well, you know, what's your GPA? And I told her, and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I'm going to be a high school history teacher. And she says, well, have you thought about graduate school? Mm-hmm. And I told her, graduate school for people who are rich and people who are smart, and mm-hmm. I'm neither. Mm-hmm. And she goes, oh, yes, you are. And so she began to you know, really encourage my interest um, in graduate education. Uh, she made sure that I became enrolled in a, a graduate seminar the next year, my senior year, mm-hmm. uh, and began sort of preparing me for graduate school, that this is something that I could do. And you can imagine how much I was loved by the graduate students in my cohort. Here mm-hmm. I was, this, you know, very, you know, um, enthusiastic uh, senior in this class. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also had another mentor, uh, Leonore Bowen Johnson, who was a young assistant professor in sociology at Florida State, African-American woman who had grown up in Pasadena, had a PhD in sociology. And I was just memorized, mesmerized by her. Mm-hmm. And it was like, wow, this is something, you know, maybe this is something I could do, get up in front of, you know, hundreds of students. Um, and lecture, and she was just so passionate about what, about her topic. I took the black family, I took what was called race relations, mm-hmm. and I went to see her at her office hours, and she began, she gave me um, some some of the early books in Chicano history. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that I saw my grandfather, who was a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, as, you know, sort of something other than, you know, a member of a, you know, sort of radical, you know, communist-inspired mm-hmm. union. Mm-hmm. That was typical of, of, of those days, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I was like, "Yes, you know, here, here are the stories." 
And so I began to, to sort of fashion my, uh, you know, about this is the, the, what I wanted to do. And in February of my senior year, uh, Albert Camarillo, who's an assistant professor at Stanford, he's now a professor in Dow chair. Mm-hmm. And he called me and he asked me about my interest in Chicago history. Mm. And we talked for half an hour. And then he called my parents and he talked to my parents for half an hour. Wow. And from that point on, Stanford was the only place I wanted to go. Wow, that's amazing. And it's because of that mentorship. If it had not been for Jingle O'Brien, and if it had not been for Albert Camarillo, uh-huh. you know, I probably, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I would not have uh, had the career I've had. I would not have met some incredibly fascinating women who have trusted me with their stories. Yeah, it's funny. If I could just interrupt for a second. This, this issue of mentorship is, is very, very important, and I, and I don't think we actually, many people in history departments and in academia mm-hmm. generally don't realize how important it is. My wife is a mathematician, and there aren't very many female mathematicians, and she's constantly talking about her mentors as a young person, and she had mentors like mm-hmm. you're talking about, and she's ta- constantly talking about mentoring people, and it, it just sounds like you mm-hmm. had an tr- absolutely terrific experience with mentorship, and I, you know, I, it's so important. When I, when I, I went to college to play basketball, actually, and I mm-hmm. had a guy there, uh, at, at Grinnell College in Iowa, who basically oh mentored me, and he, you know, I'm still in touch with him. <laughs> you know, he's it's it's just it just really changed my life. That one person or two people can really can really you know they can really affect the lives of students. So I was, I'm very happy to hear that story. And and one of the things that that, that that I tell my students is that you keep, you know, education is both the it's it's a gift and it's a responsibility. And it's their job to to, to open doors mm-hmm. uh, for others. Oh yeah. And it's something that that um, that continues. Uh, one of the, the proudest sort of moments of my um, academic career is in 1988. I was the founding director, and this is a long title: Mentorships for Undergraduate Researchers in Agriculture, Letters, and Science. Mm-hmm. It had the funny acronym of murals. Mm-hmm. And what murals did is that you put a undergraduate who met a certain GPA requirement uh, with a graduate mentor, mm-hmm. uh, undergraduate uh, with a with a faculty mentor uh, to work on a project that was either part of the faculty member's research or the student's own independent research project. Mm-hmm. The obligation was they couldn't be a, a library gopher or a coffee gopher. Right. They actually had to do real work. Mm-hmm. And as the founding director, we had we developed memorandums of understanding so the student knew what was going to be required, and the faculty member knew the obligations of the faculty member. Students uh, were paid a uh, a stipend. Faculty members had a very small amount of money put in their research account, and it, it's a program that still uh, continues today. Yeah, we have a pro- we we have a program like that here at Iowa, and I actually have one of these students. And there's also national mentorship programs for minorities that I participated in as well. And I think they're just terrific. I, I, I so enjoy my time working with those students who come from largely kind of smaller colleges to come work at the big research university. And it, it's mm-hmm. just, I, I think it's life-changing. For, it's life-changing for me. I just so enjoy talking to them. And, and you know, because I, I, I didn't come from an academic background. And, and so when I first was sort of thrown into that environment, I really needed help. Um, and I was very happy to get it. And it sounds like anybody who has the the, uh, the good fortune to work with you is in the same position. <laughs> so let me let's let's um, move on then okay. to uh, the the uh, to this book itself. How did you um, come to write uh, this book from Out of the Shadows? And then I guess you had a previous book as well. Why don't you take us through that? Okay, um, sort of 
when I was a, between my first and second year of graduate school, uh, I had the good fortune to go to Guadalajara uh, to interview uh, labor and civil rights activist Luisa Moreno. And she's probably uh, the most famous person in labor history that we know next to nothing about. Uh, she was the first Latina to be vice president of the CIO union, and she was also a uh, the organizer of the first National Latino Civil Rights Congress in, in 1939. Mm-hmm. And I had gone uh, basically with a note uh, from Al, basically, like Al sent me, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she basically looked at me and decided that I was okay and, and invited me in. And we went over the transcripts that Al and his wife had conducted with her over the period of two years. And I also began to do my own interviews. I mean, she was a fascinating, fascinating woman. Uh, she had, had been a, 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 a very wealthy young woman in, in, in Guatemala, educated in the States, had lobbied for educational rights for women in Guatemala, was scheduled to go. Uh, the first class of women admitted into the university uh, in Guatemala in 1920, and then runs away and mm. goes to Mexico, becomes an avant-garde bohemian artist, knows mm-hmm. Diego Rivera, Frida Kahlo, mm-hmm. and then comes to the United States, where mm-hmm. she becomes a, a radical labor organizer. Mm-hmm. And I was just fascinated by her stories. And at the end of my stay, I said, I know what I'm going to do for my dissertation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write about you. <laughs> and she goes, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> she's just going to write about the cannery, the cannery horses in Southern California. Yeah. And I'm going to help you find these women. You go find these women and I'll help you. And that's exactly uh, what happened is that uh, uh, I thought, I came back and I thought, what am I going to do? How am I going to uh, find uh, these women? And I was at the Centro Chicano and I was being introduced to the new uh, assistant dean of graduate study uh, at Escobar. And he basically asked me, you know, well, what did you do for your summer vacation? And I said, I interviewed Lucy Moreno. You know, I had this fabulous time, and you know, now I've got to find these women, you know, that were in uh, that organized in the 1930s and 1940s in Southern California. And she, he said, you know, I think my mother was involved with that union. Mm. Her mother was like his mother became Carmen Bernal Escobar was like a you know becomes this basically the star of my first book. Mm-hmm. And it's from that sort of serendipity is because it got started. And I always had wanted to do, since I was in graduate school, to do a big history of Mexican women in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. At first, I thought I was going to be doing it from 1540, you know, to the mm-hmm. present. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, I want to get this sort of done in my lifetime. Yeah, so after the... Uh, so after, so I began actually working on shadows uh, while I was sort of finishing up cannery women, mm-hmm. and it took uh, ten years. And I was really thrilled with the opportunity to go back to it ten years later because the research is just blossomed. Mm-hmm. I mean, when there was when I received my PhD, I was the fourth Mexican American woman uh, to receive a PhD in history. Mm-hmm. By the time Shadows came out in '98, I think it was 17. Mm. And now they're almost 50. Mm-hmm. And not everyone does, you know, Chicano uh, history or Latino history, nor should they. I mean, we have, you know, there's Ravi Gonzalez at the University of Texas, San Antonio, who's an African historian of Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's Monica Rico, uh, who assistant professor, who's a British historian. And I just terrific. But there are, you know, a number who are doing, you know, 
um, path-breaking research. My mm-hmm. colleague Ana Rosas here at UC Irvine is talking about the impact of the Rosetto program on the women and children that were left behind. Mm-hmm. And that's something that people really don't talk about when they're mm-hmm. talking uh, in the contemporary sense about the guest worker program, mm-hmm. is what are the safeguards to make sure that that people in the home country are safeguarded? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens to them? And so her work is absolutely terrific. So I'm, I was very excited to have the chance to sort of profile, you know, what's been done sort of uh, 10 years after Shadows came out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's a great privilege. And, uh, you know, we should, uh, we should thank you for helping found a field. That's, that's right. That must be very, <laughs> must be very heady <laughs> stuff. I, I didn't, you know, again, I was, I was, I interviewed, Except I, I, I'm called a pioneer and I tell people I'm not that well, old. <laughs> yeah. Too modest. Um, so, well, let's pick up the journey then with these Mexican okay. women. One, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and I've always found uh, fascinating, are the various ethnonyms, the terms that these, that, 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 that um, again, what do I call them? I don't know. But, uh, right. There's a terrific part of your book where you talk about Chicana and Mexicana, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's Mestizo, and there's Mexican-American, and there's uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Hispano and Latino. Mm-hmm, and is mm-hmm. it, could, could you uh, talk a little bit about the history of all this naming technology, this uh, terminology here? Okay. First of all, there's never been a time uh, on the entire presence of Spanish-speaking people in what will become the United States, that they ever agreed on a single term in which to call themselves. Mm-hmm. In the uh, mid-19th century, they were Californios, they were Tejanos, they were Hispanos in New Mexico. And this has sort of has, has sort of continued on. And indeed, sort of women of Mexican birth or descent refer to themselves by many names, mm-hmm. Mexicana, Mexican-American, Chicana to name just three. Mm-hmm. And also, you have to think about people identified by regional generational, mm-hmm. even political orientations. For example, the term Mexicana typically refers to immigrant women mm-hmm. with Mexican-American signaling U.S. birth. Mm-hmm. And for people who grew up sort of during the sort of the Chicano movement, it's a generational marker. Mm-hmm. Chicano is a term that was used uh, in the, I would say, the early to mid-decades of the 20th century that was an interim, a derogatory interim. Mm. Uh, in Mexicano communities, oh, Chicano meant you were like working class, you were mm. kind of low class, you were uh, resquache, you were mm. just a little, you know, you're not. Uh, and so activists, young student activists took that term that was a derogatory term in the community and they made it a term of, of pride. Mm-hmm. And for some people, you know, it was it was embraced as a generational marker. Now it's been used, you know, uh, certainly by uh, generations of students afterwards. And people uh, who were not students in 68, who were older, also adopted that term. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's very, it implies a political mm-hmm. uh, orientation. I remember when I uh, taught at the University of Texas at El Paso when I was an assistant professor. And um, my uh, children's uh, paternal great-great-uncle uh, lived in El Paso. Mm-hmm. And they used to publish the course schedules in the local paper. Mm-hmm. And he called me up. Theo Pepe called me up and he was very upset. He um, says, I see that term that you're teaching something called Chicano history and I see your name and I just want to cry. <laughs> because he was just so offended, you know, mm-hmm. by, by the term. He goes, you're a nice girl. You don't use those kind of languages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it's, it's still, I would say, uh, Somewhat of a contested term, yeah. and some prefer regional, Tejano, you mm-hmm. know, Hispano, 
mm-hmm. Spanish Americans, common in New Mexico and Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, and some favor sort of an Iberian connection, Hispanic, mm-hmm. or some will call themselves Mestiza to um, in, indicate their sort of Native American mm-hmm. uh, that too. Uh, roots. Absolutely. And so there's, and then there's Latino, which refers to everyone of Latin American birth or descent. Mm-hmm. So there's also, I, I, I tell, uh, when, when students ask me or when I give public lectures, I said, generally, if you call someone, you know, Latino or, you know, Hispanic, you're generally not going to offend them. Yeah, I think that's probably right. It is, it is, it is an interesting thing. One, one of the fascinating things about your book, uh, and again, I can kind of draw on my own, um, childhood in Kansas at this moment, mm-hmm. uh, is the, is the layering of different generations of, mm-hmm. Of, of immigrants. And this is, this sort of is in contradistinction to the African American experience where mm-hmm. most of them come in the 18th century and then there's not a further, uh, huge influx. Mm-hmm. Whereas the case with Mexican women and with, uh, Mexican Americans is there's, mm-hmm. there are waves of them. And I, again, just to, to give one kind of anecdote, I know that there were Latinos in my high school in Kansas, but they were as American as anybody. No, nobody. That's right. They, they just didn't, we didn't, we never thought of them as mm-hmm. anything but Americans. But they were clearly Mexican Americans. We could tell by their mm-hmm. names, but it wasn't. So they were sort of of an earlier generation and were American right. born. And then there were other people that that were, were clearly different to us that worked at you know what we would call a labor exchange. They would hang out by mm-hmm. the uh, by the um, you know they, they would hang out by the hardware store. And those people were mm-hmm. not Americans. <laughs> they were something else to us, and they were a newer generation. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that layering of different generations. Yeah, the the first when in 1900. There were probably 500,000 people um, of Mexican birth or descent in the Southwest. Between that's in 1900. Between 1910 and 1920, approximately one eighth of Mexico's population ventured north. Astounding. And that's over a million people. Mm-hmm. So what happened in short period? is that existing Mexican neighborhoods or Hispanic neighborhoods, particularly in California and uh, Arizona and Texas, less so in New Mexico and Colorado, uh, became um, sort of immigrant enclaves almost overnight. And so there were these tensions always between sort of these uh, two, uh, sort of two groups, mm-hmm. as well as commonality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't sort of these sort of happy communities. Uh, we, we can't romanticize them. Mm-hmm. And they, um, so you have sort of this group, and they're sort of the, the, the called the first sort of modern wave mm-hmm. of Mexican immigration. Um, between 1929 and 1934, approximately one-third of the Mexican population in the United States were either deported or repatriated. Mm even though the majority were native U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. Now, deportation was that they would just pull around in the Black Mariah and they would sort of take you off the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the infamous 1931 Placito Raid where in downtown L.A. Uh, during a, a public festival, you know, people were sort of, were, were, were taken. And if you see that in your neighborhood, uh, you become fearful. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, maybe I should just leave. You have social workers who are saying, if you go back, for example, the county of Los Angeles said, if you'll go back, you know, we'll pay your train passage. And you could, you know, perhaps sell your house, sell your possessions. Uh, you could get your uh, affairs in order. So many more people actually repatriated mm-hmm. during this uh, time period. Uh, however, many would find that uh, when they crossed the border, their uh, 
passports would be stamped, you know, uh, uh, liable to become a public charge. Mm-hmm. Do not readmit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there was this, as I said, this sort of uh, uh, this, this this really disruption, and this had occurred not only in the Southwest but also in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. By 1930, about 15% of the Mexican population in the United States lived in the Midwest. I mean, mm-hmm. Chicago is a major center mm-hmm. uh, for Mexicanos um, by 1930, mm-hmm. um, and then of course. World War II, and there's an agricultural labor shortage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're inviting people to come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we sort of, we need you. And then, of course, this is formalized in the Bracero Program, which is an executive agreement between the United States and Mexico in 1942 mm-hmm. that's renewed until 1964. Mm-hmm. And it's through um, this formalized contract labor system that people came. Now, of course, people came with... Uh, uh, not affiliated uh, with the Bracero program. Uh, and the next uh, wave, which has continued uh, relatively, you know, relatively consistently, uh, although um, until the, the very uh, recent past, uh, has been with the downturn of the Mexican economy. Mm-hmm. From about, I would say, probably beginning around, I would say around 1982, mm-hmm. where you see another another uh another big push. Mm-hmm. Uh so there is this layering of generations. Yeah. In my classes I have students, you know, who came to this co- who who you know came to this country uh as a teenager. I have students who came as a baby. I have students who uh parents uh, I have students who were uh, you know whose grandparents who are third generation who are of the revolution uh, students who are fourth generation, well, I guess third generation, fourth generation, uh, whose great grandparents, and some whose, you know, their Isanos, their roots go back, you know, to the uh, to the 1600s. Yeah, it's funny because my, um, you know, my recollection from growing up, you know, this is in the 60s and early 70s. If you were to ask me to describe somebody of Hispanic descent, I would say they probably wear cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and are from Colorado or Western Kansas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really what I would have said. I, you know, that that, that was my impression of of, of, uh-huh. of those people because that's what they were. I mean, my, yeah, all, all of my encounters were of that that sort. You know, they probably run a ranch out in western Kansas or something like that. Um, so uh-huh. yeah, it's, and it's, the railroad. Yeah, well, I mean, the railroad, railroad bought brought you know the Hicanos, uh in the you know beginning of the nineteen teens to Kansas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So what um. What, what particular challenges did uh, women face when they came to the United States uh, in the first half of the 20th century? What kind of, uh, kind of work did they do? How, how did they support themselves? Did they come with their husbands? Did their husbands mm-hmm. do migrant work? What, why don't you fill us in there? Well, what often is portrayed about Mexican immigration is single male immigrants, and that is certainly. Uh, but what is ignored is that large numbers of families also came. Uh, that you also and you also had women who came as as solas, women who uh, uh, were single women, um, who who came uh, to the United States. Some people came out of to escape the revolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mexico you had a very you know bitter, bloody civil war for ten years between 1910 and 1920. I mean, that is the major push pushing people. Um, into the United States at this time. I mean, as many people migrated to the United States as died. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to 
they come for that sort of either end. Some people came as sort of middle and upper class exiles with the idea that they were going to go back, and some did, but many stayed. Mm-hmm. And others came for the, uh, you know, the, also there's the, the pull factor, the, the economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, wages, field work wages were much more than they were in Mexico. People were being hired to work on the track. I mean, railroads were mm-hmm. incredibly, you know, the, the, the major artery of transportation mm-hmm. uh, in this country. People went to work in, in factories. Uh, so there were this, uh, as I would say, that the women generally worked in, uh, if they worked outside the home, and generally single daughters, generally daughters were more likely to work than married women, only if the family really needed that extra income. Mm-hmm. Uh, did married women uh, work full-time outside the home. Uh, women took jobs typically uh, in um, as domestics, uh, in professional laundries, mm-hmm. uh, in canneries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were uh, in sort of very sort of the uh, low-level manufacturing. They worked in garment plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, in San Antonio, they worked sorting nuts. Mm-hmm. Plants, uh, of course, informally in the community, people you know made and sold food, uh, operated sort of uh, informal restaurants out of their home, mm-hmm. uh, informal general stores. Uh, people performed uh, daycare, particularly older women, mm-hmm. uh, for uh, married uh, women who who had to work. Uh, so there was this, uh, as I would, there was this whole. Um, what I would call sort of the, the family wage economy where everyone worked and sort of pulled their resources mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. put food on the table. So they did a lot more than simply field labor. Yes. Yes, that's right. And um, that was important. That was, up in rural areas, that would be an important part, but it wasn't the only part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how did they, uh, um, you know, one thing I'm always interested in is uh, is, is how uh, immigrants come to move to new areas. And obviously it's it's because of a certain amount of economic pull, as you said, but uh, sometimes in immigrant communities, we see this process of seeding. So one family will come, and then another, and then chain another. Chain migration. Do you see it's a lot totally of that? Totally chain migration. Oh, Is yeah, that what it's absolutely. called? I don't know. No, no. It's called chain migration. People, you know, uh, one family goes, you go and you stay with the 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 deal. Uh, well, uh, it, for example, in one story that that sort of that that stays sort of that's really stayed with me and really motivated me in, in writing the book. Is that the, it's uh, Jesusito Torres, who I introduced in chapter one, mm-hmm. whom I met by chance at the El Monte Historical Museum. You know, she comes, her mother is escaping an abusive relationship and literally has to sort of escape uh, uh, and abscond on a train to the border. Um, and she is going to live uh, with her sister's family in El Monte. I mean, she's, she's going somewhere. And this is where they sort of establish roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have this absolutely. I mean, you will see uh, certain uh, uh, areas in which people actually came from the uh, the same uh, village, mm-hmm. uh, the same pueblo. Uh, uh, you could even see it in terms of uh, uh, of streets. Mm-hmm. My mother uh, uh, told me that even this even occurs within. Uh, within a state when during the depression, uh, as the depression hit, her family moves out of the Trinidad area and into, uh, into Denver. Mm-hmm. And my mother remembered that there were like streets in which you knew, oh, 
people, you know, from uh, uh, Aguilar live over here. You know, mm-hmm. if you were from Walsenburg, you tended to live on the street. So even this sort of uh, local uh, type of affiliations were mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I saw. About that. I was going to say, I saw, I saw, um, I had the chance actually to spend a, a postdoctoral year in Princeton, New Jersey, of all places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there is, uh, and Princeton is a very Tony place. Yes, I know. Uh, yeah, right. And so, but there's a Hispanic neighborhood there. Uh-huh. And yeah. of some antiquity, apparently. Um, it, it's very, yeah, and I was really surprised to see that in the middle of New Jersey. <laughs> but I suspect it was some sort of chain migration that got them there. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about assimilation. Um, what kind of pressures did uh, Mexican women and their families uh, face in terms of assimilation, and who was trying to do the assimilating? <laughs> well, I think that there were two sort of main for for uh, young people, for youth, uh, two main, and there's sort of a difference. I, I use acculturation as where you adopt the uh, the the language, uh, the customs. You, uh, popular culture, uh, that's acculturation. Assimilation is where you say, you know what, that's really not who I am. Mm, I or who people, you know, who, you know I'm you know, so totally assimilated. I mm-hmm. am a uh, uh, an American of Mexican descent. Mm-hmm. Or I've had women tell me, you know what, I'm an American. That's mm-hmm. how I am. You know, it's like, okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of a difference. But certainly there were these, these pressures encouraging um, Mexicans to become Americans just as the settlement house movement in the mm-hmm. late 19th century were encouraging, you know, Eastern Europeans and Italians and Greek immigrants and Jewish immigrants to become American. Mm-hmm. And this is, you saw this through the school, you saw this through settlement houses, you saw it through the Catholic Church, you saw it through Protestant churches, who um, set up settlement houses mm-hmm. uh, in the barrios, and you also saw it in terms of popular culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in, the 19, in the 1920s and 30s, if you were a young Mexican woman, you would not go out on a date. Mm-hmm. That was just not, that was sort of beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. You know, you always, you had a duenia, you had a chaperone. And yet they would go to the movies, you know, and they, there was no chaperones in the movies. Uh, they would meet friends at work, for example, in the counties of California, and they would notice that, you know, some of the, the, the Euro-American women they met at work, you know, they had apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, you know, they had, you know, they went out on dates. And so there was this, um, the so consumer culture, and I would say particularly with mass advertising in the 1920s, uh, really markets mm-hmm. uh, sort of a uh, it's, a it's a marketing of the American dream. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I was particularly I was going to say I was particularly interested in the chapter you mentioned the settlement movement. And I was I was particularly interested in the ways in which, uh, in in hindsight, the progressive movement and particularly the settlement movement don't look quite as good as they perhaps did at the time. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I mean, these were extraordinarily yeah. well-intentioned people. They really Absolutely. wanted to help, uh, but they, they had an odd way of going about it by our lights. They were, there was the idea that they were right, and if you follow, you know, and it, they had one way of doing things, and, and it was their way. But they were also, you have to think about, I've really perhaps mellowed <laughs> in my thinking because I – and I've tried to say that in shadow. I mean, I've tried to say that these are these the settlement house workers. Yes, they were ethnocentric. Yes, they brought their biases with them, but they also dedicated their lives. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And uh, the the Houchin settlement provided the first public health care. Mm-hmm. You know, to Mexicano immigrants in, in El Paso. Mm-hmm. Was well, the time when the public health department was not interested. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I think that that's, you know, that's important. And, and we should, should recognize that. Mm-hmm. That it's not just, uh, yes, there were strings attached, you know, to what, uh, the, the health and educational services, uh, and charitable benefits that they were providing, the cooking classes, the food baskets, um, the, the, uh, the kindergarten, the, the prenatal health care, but women also use them selectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked to a number of women uh, in El Paso in, who were born at uh, Newark Methodist Maternity Hospital. It was part of the settlement house. Mm-hmm. And it was the selection of the services mm-hmm. that they didn't necessarily sort of become Protestant. Uh, one woman was made a, a deal. They had, for a long time, the only playground in Segunda Vario was uh, the playground at Houchin. And a woman I interviewed had made a bargain with her mother that, you know, she would, that her mother would let her play on the playground equipment as long as she would, did not go inside for the cookie and Kool-Aid, for mm-hmm. the cookies and Kool-Aid in the Bible story. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's that sort of, that, that negotiation. But Houchin certainly did make a difference. Um, another woman that, that I interviewed said that, you know, I thought these women were great. They gave us more confidence uh, than our teachers. Uh, my my mother was very open-minded. Uh, I was in Girl Scouts because of Houchin, mm-hmm. um, and was you know that uh, you know they were appreciative uh, mm-hmm. uh, of the services. Mm-hmm. So and and Houchin still exists, by the way, as, a, as really? a Methodist community center. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yes, Boston. you mentioned that in the book. That's absolutely right. Yeah. You know, I I found the part about. Um, what I guess I would call anti-Catholic feeling, just fascinating. Oh, yes. And it's just something that we forget when we talk about these progressives, especially the, the exactly. settlement movement, of how just really anti-Catholic they were. <laughs> they did not <laughs> like Catholicism, and they were they were saving people from it. That's what they felt. <laughs> Absolutely saving. I mean, they were, there was the idea that, you know, that, these, that there was not Christian. Yeah, right. Not only not Christian, but it was like anti-Christian. Yeah. Yeah, no, I found that I found that very. Yeah, I, I, I've read that several times, and I, every time it surprises me because mm-hmm. <laughs> I just forget that that's part of it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's absolutely fascinating. And also, you know, it kind of goes to the again something in my own lifetime. I mean, many of the uh, Hispanic people, Latinos that that I grew up with, did not speak Spanish, and mm-hmm. they they didn't yeah. because they their parents thought that it wasn't really appropriate that they wanted and, them to be fully assimilated and not have any you know any of the kind of you know outside their catholicism they didn't want to you know have any taint of that so you can actually see it you know, quite recently you know it's the idea that they wanted to give their children the advantages they didn't have yeah. and they felt that their children perhaps would be discriminated against if yeah. they spoke spanish uh often uh they would be encouraged by teachers uh, not uh, to uh, speak Spanish yeah. uh, to uh, to their children, uh-huh. uh, and people they did. You know, they, they they took it they took it to heart. They wanted their kids to have an education, and certainly, I know my mother was very very strongly encouraged my own education because she desperately wanted one, but had uh-huh. to go to work yeah. at the age of thirteen to support her family. Yeah. and that was always sort of. That was encouraged. Uh-huh. Ab- absolutely encouraged was was education and education. And it's interesting in terms of how it was sort of couched for women. Uh, I was encouraged to go to school. My sister was encouraged to get a college education. 
not so much for a career, mind you, but for the fact that we would have something to fall back upon. Right. In case something would happen with our expected marriage. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that, but that's exactly why my mother went to college and then finished. She was because her her parents said, you know, men they do funny things, and you need to. Be and it turned out in her case, I mean, she became a school teacher. Uh, that it it was a it was a lifesaver for all of us. <laughs> I won't go into any biographical detail, but it was important. <laughs> yeah. So, so they, yeah, so they, so, 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 you know, I, I just find that very, I, I find especially the linguistic part of it very interesting because our attitudes toward that kind of thing have changed so substantially uh-huh. now. I mean, we, we have bilingual schools and, and we very much encourage uh-huh. people to preserve the old language. And, and is there, I, I, there must be a debate in the Hispanic community today about just these issues. There is. Some are, uh, again, it's, it's the way it, you know, this is this sort of just has continued in that you have people who, you know, are, you very know, believe that. But actually, you know, second, it's important. We live in a global society. It's important to speak more than one language, yeah. no matter what your ethnicity is. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, we can't expect to go in the world and expect everyone to speak yeah, English. No, that's right. No, I think that's exactly right. And yeah. I think, you know, the, and the people, yeah, certainly, you know, I would say, uh, you know, and everyone recognizes the importance of English, that mm-hmm. English is the language of success in this country. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you have to uh, abandon your cultural language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's important that for everyone. Uh, I uh, interviewed Concha Ortiz Ipino, who was the first Hispanic woman legislator elected in 1936. Mm-hmm. And she fought for bilingual education in New Mexican schools. But it wasn't bilingual education just for Hispanos. It was for everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because she thought if everyone in New Mexico spoke Spanish, that they would be well poised uh, to have business careers with Latin America, mm-hmm. and they could be at the forefront of this, these sort of, uh, of, of of business dealings. Now, she didn't do it necessarily couching it in cultural terms; she was couching it in terms of economics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought, in 1942, that's pretty far. Yeah, no, that is that is that is progressive. Yes, that's she was way ahead of herself. Um, anyway, uh, Vicky, we've taken up really a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. I know you're extraordinarily busy. Um, let me uh, conclude our interview by asking you our traditional final question. That is, what are you working on now? I am going back to what I originally wanted to do my dissertation. I am writing a biography of Luis Moreno. (laughs) 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 That and I am launching and it should be available through the History Cooperative. It is a free uh, website on Latina history. Terrific. From 1540 to the present. That's great. And it is uh, a project, a, a totally collaborative project, in which I will have to say uh, I am a minor, but a minor player with Carlos Cruz and Virginia Sanchez Corral mm-hmm. at uh, SUNY Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. That sounds terrific. Yeah. No, that's great. I do a lot of work on the web <laughs> myself, and I, I encourage everybody to put everything on the web they can, because I know you, mm-hmm. you probably know better than I do that if it isn't on the web, students don't know it exists. Um, exactly. It's really too bad, but it's really quite true. And actually, the show is kind of an effort in that way to get people interested in reading books like yours, you know, to have them listen to these interviews and then perhaps go out and buy the book and become more interested in these issues. But anyway, let me uh, let me just say that uh, we've had Vicki Ruiz on the show today, and we've been talking about her book, from Out of the Shadows, Mexican Women in 20th Century America. The 10th anniversary edition has just been published by Oxford University Press. It's a terrific book. Vicki, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Talk to you. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to an interview with Vicki Ruiz, author of From Out of the Shadows, Mexican Women in 20th Century America. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.